Welcome to Big Questions. This is Cal Fussman. And I was so happy to meet my guests this week for a couple of reasons. I got a chance to share a glass of champagne and some birthday cake with her. It was her birthday at the end of February. As well as have the kind of conversation that I've been wanting to have for months now. Because I really want to understand the shifting of the plates underneath men and women and all the crazy headlines of the last half year or so. And Randy Zuckerberg is the perfect person to have that conversation with. You may recognize her last name. She's the older sister of Facebook founder Mark Zuckerberg. And after graduating from Harvard and working for a couple of years at the advertising agency Ogilvy & Mather in New York City, she headed west to help Mark get Facebook off the ground. As one of the few women in the room in Silicon Valley for a decade, and now as a woman who speaks to audiences full of men about cryptocurrency, she has a unique perspective, that's for sure. She's written the New York Times bestselling book, Dot Complicated, and has another book on the way this May called Pick Three. She founded her own media company, and she invests in companies that allow women to achieve their dreams, which means she understands what women are up against. Before we parted, she encouraged me to expand the conversation. She says something like, Cal, you should go talk to the women who are out fundraising, out pitching their companies. And when they try to set up appointments with potential investors, they hear comments from men like, I only take pitches in the hot tub. Only take pitches in the hot tub? What? I'm always grateful for conversations that open my eyes and make me say, what? This is one of them. But first want to say thanks to ZipRecruiter for making this all happen. If you're looking to hire, the best thing you can do is go to ZipRecruiter.com, type in the description of the job you're seeking to fill, and with a single click, you'll have qualified candidates within 24 hours. Go to ZipRecruiter.com slash Fussman, F-U-S-S-M-A-N, and you'll get a free trial. It doesn't get any better than that. ZipRecruiter. Also want to thank Squarespace. And you will too. If you start a new website on Squarespace, because you'll get to look at yourself in a whole new way. And that way will be beautiful and unique. Go to squarespace.com and type in the offer code FUSSMAN, F-U-S-S-M-A-N, and get 10% off your next domain name and custom-made website. You'll never look so good on the internet as you will on Squarespace. Welcome to Big Questions. This is Cal Fussman, and my guest today is the birthday girl. Woohoo! Randy Zuckerberg. Ding, ding, ding. <laughs> Jazz <go>. hands. <laughs> there we go. Thank you. What a thrill to be here. On your birthday. I know. I love it. I can't imagine a better way to celebrate. And you flew across the ocean. I did. You know, really, I just wanted to extend my birthday as long as possible. So I decided to start it in a different time zone in Germany and then just keep flying (laughs) backwards around the world. You know, it's the way to do it. You get a lot of cake that way. Well, we got a big one over there (laughs) for you. I'm excited. I wish wish everyone could see it. uh, It has candy in the middle, too. See, a kid, my my last name is Zuckerberg. It means sugar mountain. That's so. That's that's what I like to say to justify how much cake I eat. This is perfect. <laughs> you know why I'm so excited to be talking to you right now? Why? You are a woman. Now that may sound strange, and <laughs> I, you see my wedding band here. I'm married for 26 years. It's a wonderful marriage. Three kids. 
here's, here's why I said that. For the last two decades, I was interviewing for Esquire magazine, which is a male magazine. Mm. I had an exclusive contract. So basically, the people I interviewed were the people that Esquire wanted me to interview. It's a male magazine. So I was with Mikhail Gorbachev, Muhammad Ali, Robert De Niro, Al Pacino. I mean, that's not a pretty bad crew. It's to a be great crew, <laughs> but very yeah. few women. Well, welcome to the club. We are uh, a fun, fun group to hang out with. <laughs> well, I got a lot of questions. And the beauty is with this podcast, I can interview as many women as I like. I love it. And it's great. It's really great to have you. Well, it's it's great to have you too. Welcome to the more intelligent half oh, of no. society where, oh, no. you know, oh, thrilled no. to have you. <laughs> oh boy. Here we go. All right. We'll start with the first big question. Is there a difference between being a woman on January 1st, 2017 and now? It's a great question. Um, I think I'm not sure that uh, there's a difference in what it feels like to be a woman, but there certainly feels like there's a difference in the power of our voices. Um I think for the first time, we're in a world where people feel like everyone's voice matters, everyone's voice is powerful. Um, people are banding together, whether it's in social media, in protests, coming forward with their stories, with support. And uh, you know, it used to be that you had to have a celebrity platform to have a voice or a business leader. Now, I really feel like every woman has a voice. Um, that being said, I don't think that it feels different. I think um, a lot of women, quite frankly, have been angry for years with the situation of what's been going on. It's just that it's been kind of kept at a simmer under the surface. But I think thanks to what's happening in politics with a lot of the stories that are coming out, um, it's kind of turned to full-fledged boil, which has really inspired a lot more people to come forward. Now, interesting, I got a copy of Dot Complicated in front of me, which you mm. wrote years ago. But many of the things you wrote in this book really seem to apply to what we're talking about yes. because you were talking about the power of storytelling. And maybe yeah. this goes back to your love of theater and opera when you were a kid, but combining it with the power of the internet. Yeah. It's, uh, I mean, I think it's incredible to be growing up today. I wish when I think back on what I used to do in my childhood, I was always filming movies and doing creative things. I, I think if only I had an iPhone and I had access to all of the incredible storytelling tools and video tools that we have now, you know, I, how much more creative I could have been. We all have excellent storytelling tools at our fingertips. What that means, though, is that when we see things that are inequalities in society, people are also going to tell those stories, and they're going to travel faster and further than ever before. So people are, are sharing the good parts uh, of their life and what they're experiencing, and they're sharing the bad. And I think we're seeing that come out. You know, people have opinions, and they're sharing them. Um, I sat in Silicon Valley for over a decade, and I loved being part of the Silicon Valley culture. It's I think, hands down, the most innovative place in the world of how people are thinking about changing things. On the other hand, I hated being the only woman in the room for a and decade. this was like back in 2004? Yeah. You, you, I moved there in, in around 2004, 2005. You had graduated um, from college at Harvard. Exactly. Came to New York. Came to New York. I mean, I grew up in New York. I didn't think that life existed outside of New York City. I was one of those people. <laughs> And uh, so I, if you had told me that I would spend a decade of my life in suburban California, I would have laughed in your face, you know? So of course I went back to New York City after college. And uh, I was studying digital marketing and interactive marketing. I was working at an ad agency and it was pretty, it was really on the cusp of digital and interactive marketing at that time. There were not that many of us who were, it was a tiny team inside the ad agency. Today, that same team is the biggest team inside the ad agency. And, uh, but it was tiny when I was there. So 
when um, I, you know, I started getting the calls, you know, hey, I started this thing called the Facebook. You know, I could use someone who knows digital marketing. That's your little brother. But, yeah, my little brother called me and he's like, hey, you know, what he really meant was I need someone to work for free was really what he meant, but that, that's okay. <laughs> but, you know, there I was. I was, um, you know, in a, a lucky, a, a great position to be one of the few people who really had some experience in digital marketing. And uh, originally it was supposed to be six months tops. That's what I told myself. You know, I'll go out for six months to California and help him. And then 10 years later, still 10 years, a house, children still there. So what happens when you go to Silicon Valley and are now in a very different social situation? What's it like to be a woman in Silicon Valley Mm -hmm. in 2004? I'm so glad you asked because I... um, I grew up having a lot of conversations around the glass ceiling with my mom. My mom's a a doctor, a psychiatrist, and she kept telling me all these stories about how she was the only woman in her medical school class, the only woman in her residency. And I kept swearing, I was like, things are different, mom. You know, it's 1999. There's no more glass ceiling. Like, stop talking, mom, whatever. And and then when I went to work at Ogilvy and May, there there was a a female CEO, Shelly Lazarus, one of the few female CEO CEOs of a huge company. And so there I was, I, I just felt completely validated. No more glass ceiling, whatever, mom. Then I moved out to Silicon Valley. Wow. <laughs> and suddenly I spent 10 years being completely aware of my gender every single day I was there. How um, does that, how do I see, if I'm looking at that in a movie, Yeah. how do I see that? You don't. I mean, you look at look at every movie, every television show that's on air about tech in Silicon Valley. You'd be hard pressed to find any women, certainly any ins- inspirational female characters. You might see a secretary or a you know, and um, it's that was I think the most shocking thing to me of all because here are these companies that are reaching billions of people around the world. Most of these uh, consumer tech companies, the majority of their customers are women. Yet you would be very hard pressed to find a company that has, I would say, more than ten percent of their workforce is female. So it's uh, you know it's it's a huge challenge. So how were you seen at in that place and time? Was your opinion more important because you are a woman, or were you seen as an outsider? Yeah, in some way? I think you know. That's maybe going back to your question of how things are different today uh, than in 2004. I think today um, it is considered uh, companies are looking at diversity in a new way. It's not just like, a oh, we we have to have a woman or we have to have this. I think companies are starting to see that diversity is a good business decision. It affects the bottom line. It makes companies more money to have diverse uh, viewpoints at the table. In 2004, I don't think anyone felt that way. I think people were just, you know, um, there just weren't that many women around, and that was a, an acceptable thing. Was your opinion? Was your opinions, or were your opinions accepted? Or were I think so. I think they were accepted. I uh, I heard um, an interesting quote from Melinda Gates the other day that there were 50 years ago there were actually double the number of women in tech as there are today. So what? it has actually gone. It's one of the only industries that's seen just a, a huge decline. Why? Um, I wish I knew the answer to that question. That is why I'm really, I have completely dedicated this next chapter of my career to working with uh, with women and girls to inspire more of them to go into tech. Because uh, to me, that's, I mean, it, it boggles my mind. This is, we're sitting on the biggest wealth creation event in the history of humankind with technology. And half of our population is getting completely left behind out of it. And and that doesn't sit right with me. So for me, you know, I loved being in Silicon Valley. I loved being part of that. I really enjoyed having a front row seat to kind of this rocket ship of social media. But um, ultimately, I just couldn't stay there in that culture because it didn't sit right with me that so many people were just completely getting left out of that world. Is there any, like, genetic reason that this is happening? Well, why? I mean, people have tried to explain it a, a million different ways. People have tried to say, you know, um, there's, I've heard uh, venture capitalists say things like, well, you know, we're really looking for people with com- a computer science background, a technical background to fill this job. 
But then you look at that same venture capitalist background and they were a journalism major in school, right? So someone gave them their first job at some point and then they turn around and justify not hiring women by saying like, well, women aren't technical. You know, there, there's a lot of that. There's a lot of that that's going on. In fact, I sometimes jokingly, when people ask me today, what's my best advice for being a woman in tech? It's like half joking, half real. My best advice is to have a man's name like Randy. Because I can't, I can't tell you how many meetings I got because someone thought they were meeting with a dude. Like I'd email them and then I'd show up and they'd say, oh, you know, where, where's, where's Randy? Ra- and I'd say, sucker. <laughs> you're, looking, you're looking at him. <laughs> and, and what would happen after that surprise? Would they be? Yeah, I think, you know, often people were kind of shocked enough to, uh, to lift their awareness. But um, it's... Uh, To me, though, I think there's also a power to kind of share an optimistic side of the story. Um, There is a power in business of being underestimated. You know, when you when you walk into a room and people don't think that you're a threat or they underestimate you, they let their guard down a little bit. They, you know, they're open. It leaves. So I think there's there's good things and bad, but ultimately. I, I would love to see 20 years from now many more women going into technology and into STEM fields. And I think it, it starts young with children, with schools. And um, so that's a lot of what I'm working on now. Is there like a certain way that girls can be pointed toward technology? Yes, that- absolutely. It start, it's uh, about eight or nine years old that we lose girls in tech. Um, it is around third grade. Hold is it. When, so yeah. kindergarten, first grade, everything's That's fine. Right. They're just the same as boys. Just the same. If you talk to a second grade girl, they will tell you they love robots. They're, you know, they're into building and Legos and everything. Something around third grade when people's identify, identity starts to solidify and they start using statements like, I'm good at this. I'm bad at this. That's for boys. That's for girls. It's something around that age that if you have not introduced a girl to tech and science by then, it's very, very hard to get her excited. And what are you going to do to get them excited? <laughs> I'm, I'm glad you asked. It was I, So I didn't know any of that research when I left Silicon Valley. All I knew was that there was this huge glaring problem uh, in the industry, and I wanted to solve it. And uh, I wrote my book, Dot Complicated, which uh, thank right you for referencing. It. And it was while I was researching Dot Complicated that I stumbled on all of these stats around that third grade, eight, nine-year-old age range. And so I ended up going back to my publisher and saying, okay, I would love to write this business book, but you have to let me write a children's book also. Uh, I ended up publishing my book, Dot, a children's book about a techie little nine-year-old girl that's now a television show in about 30 countries around the world. And uh, from there, I've just really started taking on as many projects as I can around children and media. I just launched this past year, Sue's Tech Kitchen. It's a kind of a a tech-themed dining experience for families where Robots can make you pancakes. You can get 3D printed chocolate. Just anything that makes tech fun, delightful, exciting for the family is, I think, what gets girls in the door and keeps them there. Is there something that happens between what by the time a girl goes to college that basically gets her to look at tech in a way that I would never? Ever, wow. ever do that. Or they, you're talking about this point at nine, but it, is it very difficult to get somebody to like something that they didn't know they liked? I think it's certainly a possibility. And so I'm not giving up on, on girls that are post nine years old. I mean, I just interviewed someone on my radio show a few months ago who at 70 taught herself how to code and has, you know, an app that sold a million copies in the app store. So I, I mean, there's incredible stories of that. I do think that um, a lot of the, a lot of times I tell parents to like, get your your daughter into Minecraft. Like I love teenage girls playing Minecraft because it's basically a gateway into coding without knowing it. Um, and a lot of boys who sit around with their friends and are into gaming and, and doing that, they're kind of learning how to code. They're getting that introduction to code such that when you get to college 
and there's that 101 coding class, the boys start much uh, further down the road and the girls get discouraged. So I, I actually, I love when parents encourage their daughters to be into gaming because I think that's a great first step. Do you see women as a whole looking at the world differently? And I ask that question, they have these marches now, which I guess got three million people in yeah. various cities around America. When What happens when large groups f- get together and start telling their stories mm. simply through walking? I mean, I think it's incredibly powerful when you see that. What I feel like we need to see more of, though, is it is that lasting for a long time, not just one day. Activism can't just be one tweet or one walk. It has to be something that you carry with you. I mean, for me, it's uh, it's going on seven years now that I've been working on projects around women and tech and girls, and I feel like I'm just getting started, right? So for a lot of people, they're... I think a lot of people feel like if they send one social media post slamming something or they show up at one event, like, okay, great, I've been an activist. This, it needs to be a lifestyle. It needs to be part of everything that you do. I was talking to a woman who was trying to explain this to me. And one of the things that I've learned just starting to talk to women is that they don't all have the same ideas. <laughs> yeah. And she was saying, like, I don't, I don't really get these marches. You've got all these people out there, but what are they actually mm-hmm. doing? Back in the 60s when there were yeah. civil rights, we knew what we were marching for. Right. It's, it almost seems like everybody's out in the street because they're frustrated and angry. Yes. But what is going to happen because right. of it? I have to actually say, for me, the most meaningful part of going to the Women's March was the ability to bring my sons. Because I, for me, I think that raising boys to learn to you know work side by side with women and value them is the most important thing that you could do and so um that really opened my eyes to the importance of of talking then that made me expand my work beyond just talking to girls to making sure i'm including boys in the conversation too when you said that i had this flashback uh, to an interview i was doing with esther perel Mm. I don't right. It's the psychotherapist. Yeah. And th- this is one of the reasons that I want to talk to a lot of women yeah. because we were talking about this whole concept of w- what can men say, what can men not say, where can they say it, where can they not say it. And Esther was saying that it's going to take the men. Yep. to tell the other men that their behavior is not going to be tolerated. Yes. And she's telling this to me, and I, I don't want to say I rolled my eyes, but I might have. Okay. I might have because I, I actually said to her, and I, the next time I see her, I will apologize to her <laughs> with a, a story that's going to make her feel good. But at the time I said, look, Esther, I've been in a play in this place a thousand and one times where I'm on a street corner, there's six guys there. There's a woman, she's a block away. She can't even hear what's being <laughs> said. Now what's being said, let's say it's vulgar. I have never in one thousand and one times seen the man in that group say to the man who said it, Hey, not cool. Never. And so I'm saying, look, Esther, like you can say this, but it ain't gonna happen. Yeah. And she we, she started to get like a little upset <laughs> with me, and she's saying, you know, 80 years ago they said that African Americans yeah. wouldn't have right yeah. civil rights, and. 40 years ago, they said gay people would never have the right to marry. And she says, Cal, I'm telling you that 20 years from now, you're going to see, I guess, people like your son, because you had them on the march, they're going to do something about this. They're not going to behave the same way. You're you're absolutely right. And uh, especially since, you know, 
if if I were a man right now who has had bad behavior in the past, I would be shaking in my boots because we are a majority of the population. There's a whole generation of young, vocal, powerful, woke women out there and men who support them. And so this is, you know, this is not something that's bad behavior is not going to be tolerated for much longer. Well, what happened with me, I found myself in that situation where a guy said something and I turned to him and said, rules changed, can't do that anymore. But I think it's not just about uh, vulgar things. I think it's also about um, men realizing the subtle ways that they have privilege in society and business that you might not know. So for example, I can't tell you um, how many times, you know, a friend has said, you know, hey, can you check out this, uh, this press release or this blog post that I'm about to post and give me your thoughts? And they'll list, you know, here's eight people who have inspired me in my career and they're all men. And I'll send it back. Hey, Stick a woman on that list. Like women are inspiring too. Or I like I can't tell you how many business books I've picked up where I've had to get to page two hundred in the book before I've seen a single woman quoted in the book or a single. I mean, these little things make differences. These are things that any of us, you know, if you have a podcast platform, if you're writing a book, if you're blogging, um, it's not just about being vulgar or not vulgar or calling people out on sexual harassment. It's about the everyday things and using your voice to make sure that you're part of the solution, not continuing the problem. It reminds me of that Gloria Steinem quote where uh, women have always been an equal part of the past. They just haven't been an equal part of history. That they just haven't yeah. gotten the credit. What I'm curious about is you had an incident back, I guess, last November in a plane. I wanted to ask you about this because two reasons. I want to hear what happened. And two, I want to know how I should have acted if I was Mm. seated in the row behind you. So I'm just going to let you tell the story and we'll pick it up after that. And I, you know, I also realize a lot of situations are gray situations. It's hard to know when to get involved, but, uh, for me, I boarded a, a flight on Alaska Airlines, and bef- while, before the plane had even left the gate, while we were sitting there in that 30-minute period, um, the man seated next to me was so vulgar. I don't even want to repeat the things on this podcast that were coming out of his mouth because it was so disgusting. Um, and you're I, sitting... I was sitting. You, where, where, where I was, was sitting. I was sitting by the window. I was in first class. So I was you were flying locked, on business. Locked in, in a way. That's you, right. I was locked in, and um, I had a friend who was a few rows behind me. So I started texting her, saying, "You got to talk to a flight attendant for me because this man is terrible. Like you have to tell the flight attendant that they need something needs to happen." And so my friend called over the flight attendant, and she said. Well, there's an open seat in the very last row of the plane. I can move your friend. Go to the back yeah, of the go bus. go to the back of the bus, right? I wasn't the one causing the problem. Why, why should I get up and move? I'm a, I'm a business traveler on their airline, not causing any problems. And so the answer in our society is always for the woman. The onus is on the woman to take action. It's on the woman to call it out, the woman to remove herself, the woman to make the man feel comfortable. Oh, don't worry. You're one of the good ones. You're not part of it. You know, every interaction, the onus is on the woman. And so I just frankly, like, didn't want to deal with that bullshit. And I wasn't going to move. So I then so proceeded to he's get... he's sitting there while yeah. you're talking this out. That's right. And so you're completely explaining, I do not want to sit next to this guy. I mean, maybe I didn't say it in quite as, uh, <laughs> as terms as that because I, I then I got nervous. You know, I'm stuck with him for three hours. Is he going to get physical? Is Was he, he going to get big aggressive? Guy? A big guy. And he, I should also mention that they served him about four cocktails during the flight. He was double fisting at several times. So um, I I had no idea what he was going to say or do. And so I 
felt I had tried going the normal routes of what would have been acceptable to handle the situation. And I felt that on behalf of the thousands of women this must happen to every year, that I had an obligation to use my voice to call it out more publicly. And so here we go to the internet and storytelling. That's right. And we go to storytelling um, and thing, I mean, you can really see the power of the internet. I mean, I think it had been shared over a million times a few hours later. So you write a letter. Is that I wrote a, yeah. Well, first I tried, I tried contacting their customer service lines because I don't believe in just shaming companies online. I believe, you know, you should try to give a company a chance to solve it. But when you're not getting through, you turn to your platforms that you have. So I published an open letter to Alaska Airlines on my social media and it got picked up. And, you know, I, lo and behold, I magically got a response from them, which I assume is because they felt sorry that I was a celebrity talking about it. And so not, do you, you know, think if you were not a celebrity, uh, if I, you hadn't written a best-selling book, if your brother hadn't yeah. started Facebook, I'm, that there would have been a different response? I'm certain there would have been a different response. But you know what? In your book, on page 66 <laughs> of Dot Complicated, you talk about a guy in Colombia who mm. just got fed up yep. with the terrorist uh, organization FARC, and he started a Facebook page and within four hours had 1,500 followers. It's amazing. Within a week had, I think it was like 100,000. Yeah. And then after a month, there were 12 million people marching in the streets. It's incredible. I mean, you can really see when you touch a moment in the zeitgeist. The other thing that I love, I mean, you look on social media and it's full of these micro-influencers. I think, I mean, gone are the days of creating another Oprah-like celebrity. You know, now you have people who are really experts in fitness or experts in Bitcoin or expert, you know, and and they have a huge... uh, audiences, huge influence in those spheres, but outside those spheres, you probably wouldn't even recognize them on the street. And uh, I think that is only made possible because of social media and because of, of these platforms too. So with, you know, there's everything is dot complicated, like the title of my book, everything, every new platform, every tech comes with opportunity and challenges and, uh, and it's all about navigating them. What happened to the flight attendants during this whole process because your friend alerts them, hey, see Randy? She's sitting up against the window. She's locked in. She's got a problem. They come to you, say go to the back of the bus. But how were they explaining this Uh, to you? And this is what I really think is a systemic problem in these industries is that I don't believe that the flight attendants felt empowered to do anything. These were female? These were female flight attendants. The guy next to me, it was explained to me. When I got up to go to the bathroom, one of the flight attendants kind of flagged me down. And she's like, listen, this guy is on this flight all the time. He's a frequent traveler on on this route. This is just how he is. Like, don't take it personally. So she was apologizing. So she was apologizing. So clearly they knew that this guy was a problem. But when you're a frequent customer, when you're a frequent traveler, they're not going to turn down your money. They're going to let you, you know, dole out a lot of crap to a lot of other passengers around you. And probably if he was treating me that way, I'm sure he was saying things to the flight attendants too. So I I think we need to make sure that in these industries, I actually I don't blame the the flight attendants that much. I I I wish they had acted differently. I think they probably should have called a supervisor, done something. I think it's probably a bigger problem that they, as female flight attendants on the plane, did not feel empowered. And and I, I see it all the time. I am, I spend about 100 days a year on the road, and um, I, I travel all over the world. So I, I've really, you know, consider myself a pro traveler by now. And I have um, the, the highest status on, on a few airlines that you could fly because I've given my soul to flying. Um, and when they call, they usually do pre-boarding for that high status level. And um, whenever I go to board the plane, I usually get stopped like, oh, no, sorry, this we're just we're only boarding, you know, global service now or we're only boarding diamond because it's just I don't look like what a 
a, a business tra frequent business traveler looks like. Um, and so it's everywhere. It's everywhere in the industry. And it's just, it's something we really need to think about. I can't even imagine how many tens of thousands of women every year are put in uncomfortable situations on the road. See, the, this is all new to me. <laughs> this is why I got to talk to women because I could never anticipate that uh. if, if you have the card that says, hey, I've, I've flown 3 million miles last year, then you would be treated with respect. That's right. I, I don't look, when you look at me, I don't look like the kind of person who, you know, spent probably $100,000 on, on United Airlines last year. Like, I don't, I don't look like that when you look at me. So um, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's definitely something that I think we're going to have to start facing more uh, in society and something that certainly that situation on Alaska Airlines showed me that I have to step up and, and use my voice. So let's say I was sitting in the row behind. What yeah. would you have wanted me to do? I think if you had been in the row behind and you had overheard what was going on, it, sounds, it would have been a, a very nice thing to offer to switch seats. Ah, so th that's smart. Yeah. Okay, that's smart. So now I'm not creating a confrontation. You're not creating a confrontation. You're still, you know, sitting in business class. You know, you're sitting in your seat. And probably that guy next to you, once another man moves next to him, is going to be quiet. Do you, you think so? I mean, uh, I Three can't drinks. imagine. I mean, well, I don't know what. Uh, yeah, I don't know what he was was saying. Unless or, I guess he wanted to like bro up to you or something. But right. uh, but who? I, I feel like another guy could shut that down pretty quickly. It goes back to Esther's point. She was saying <laughs> it's it's a guy's responsibility to shut it down if he sees it. Yeah, uh, I mean. Definitely, I think women should should speak up for themselves, but it's difficult when you're in that position. And like you said, I was kind of trapped in a window thinking, is this guy going to get physically aggressive with me? It's a lot harder to find your voice in that situation, in that moment. Yeah, I get that. And um, so there have now been times that I've I've even kept my own eyes open to seeing you know other women that might be in those situations. And I had an experience on a plane a few weeks ago where when... Uh, a woman, when the man next to her got up to go to the bathroom, I tapped her on the shoulder and I was like, are you, are you okay? Like, is this a situation that you're okay being in? Was he um, trying to pick her up or something? He was just saying things that I thought were pretty inappropriate. And she was like, oh, he's my, my coworker. I deal with this all the time. Um, and uh, So women are just yeah. like conditioned to let it slide by. Yeah, because you know, if you call it out, you're the you're the squeaky wheel, you're the one that no one wants to work with, right? You have to kind of, you know, we have a culture of, you know, entrepreneurship is all about like manning up and and uh, you know, those are words that we use, right? Have balls, right? These are words that we use to describe people who are tough in business and tough in life. And um uh I think that things really, really have to change. But I mean, I think things will change in time. Like Esther said, even if we do nothing to change it, there's a new generation that's just not going to handle that bullshit. But um, it's I I do see a path that that we could see some real change in the next few years if people just open up their eyes and and commit to calling things out when they see them. We got to pause now because Kevin. The manager tells me it's time to talk about the people who make all this possible. Our sponsors. Picasso once said that every child is an artist. The problem is how to remain an artist once we grow up. I've got an answer for that if you're starting a website. Go to Squarespace. Squarespace is going to give you the canvas to see yourself in the best possible way. You'll be able to customize your message, make it simple, clear, and beautiful. That's why I'm developing my website on Squarespace. All of my plans down the road will come out through that Squarespace frame. And it's simple. The other day, I had an idea, needed a new domain name. Went on squarespace.com, and in an instant, I had everything I needed. So go to squarespace.com, 
Enter the offer code FUSSMAN, F-U-S-S-M-A-N, and get 10% off a new website or domain name. You'll be glad you did. And while we're talking about art, let's talk about the art of the algorithm. Because ZipRecruiter's algorithms are works of art. You need to hire someone? All you need to do is go to ZipRecruiter.com, type in the job description, and within a single click, you'll set ZipRecruiter's algorithms in motion. Those algorithms will bring you qualified candidates within 24 hours. I've even heard stories where people have typed in the job description, clicked away, gone to lunch. By the time they got back, voila, the algorithms had sent qualified candidates right back. These algorithms can even rank the candidates in terms of strength to save you time. Let's face it, hiring is not an easy process. You got to ask the right questions, make the right reads. But with ZipRecruiter, you'll be halfway there with a single click. So go to ZipRecruiter.com slash Fussman, F-U-S-S-M-A-N, and give those algorithms a free trial. How can you do any better than that? What other ways do I need to open my eyes? Because I, I I wouldn't know that these things are existing unless a woman is telling me. Yeah. I, well, first of all, I think that's a huge part of it is to, uh, is the fact that you're having these dialogue, this dialogue and these conversations. Um, I know every time that I speak to male friends of mine who are hiring for jobs, I'm always pushing them, you know, well, have you, how many women have you interviewed for the position? How many minorities have you interviewed for the position? And, you know, because yeah, diversity takes a little more effort, but it's worth it. Um, or how many, you know, ha- when companies come to me for angel investment, I used to look at everything. You know, I don't want to miss out on a good investment. Now I will not even look at a company if there's not at least like one senior woman on the executive team. I'm just, I am not interested. I don't have the time for companies that are just all dudes working on a tech company. Like, I'm sure there's a lot of other people who will fund them, not me. You know, I heard a story about a the way that men tend to see things. And I, it goes to a symphony where the conductor or the people who were hiring the musicians were in the seats and violinists would come out an audition. Mm. And so they would see who is being hired after these auditions. And they, they did some kind of test. And they then closed the curtain so that the conductor, or the leader of the orchestra, could not see who was playing, could only hear the music. Mm. And they said more often when the curtain was closed... They would hire women. That's right. Wow. Yeah. It it doesn't surprise me. I think, and a lot of companies are starting to do things like that, where if you're just applying for a pure coding technical job, you know, why do you need to see the name of a candidate or their ethnic background in order to determine if someone writes good code? So I think, I think having blind layers of of job interviews and application process is always a good thing. Um, We have so many biases. Unfortunately, in the the symphony example, what ended up happening years down the line is they realized that they were accidentally creating a different bias than the one. So they solved for the gender one, but what ended up happening is then then the orchestras were getting filled with all young people who were practicing like hours and hours and hours a day uh, right out of college and didn't have other jobs. Like they had a ton of time to practice. So they sounded fresher in those interviews, but in those auditions behind the curtain. And it was actually um, alienating older musicians that had jobs and weren't able to put in the hours of practice as the younger musicians. So sometimes when you try to solve for one bias, you create a different one. When... You were talking about a coding job being open, 
And let's say there were two Randys that were, yeah. were well, we don't know who they are. Be, be, do they just become numbers? What in, in this scenario, how do the applicants get it's named? Uh, so I was reading somewhere around the 1960s or 70s, there was a big study that came out that said that uh, coding aptitude is linked to being antisocial. So if you're not social, right. then you're going to be a better coder. Anyway, that study has been debunked dozens of times since then, but that was really the turning point of like the male uh, anti-social computer programmer. Companies were just like racing to hire people who met that model. So and, people uh, who are in a 30-degree room uh, just... Yeah, like hermits. <laughs> They're like, we want like the least social like dudes in there, you know, like hermits that we can get because they're going to be the best programmers. And so uh, because all these companies in the 60s and 70s raced to do that, it sort of kept just perpetuating. Those people then were in charge of hiring decisions of other people. And, in you know, and, right. and sometimes those things, you know, it, like I said, it's been debunked many times that being antisocial does not actually make you better at writing code. But um, now these companies are just filled with thousands of, of people who meet that description who just hire other people like them. I heard a story, I overheard it when I was in San Francisco at a restaurant where there was this coder who was great. And because he was great, the company really wanted to keep him, but he could basically only code. That's all he loved to do. Yeah. But since they wanted to keep him, they said, well, we'll make you a manager. Mm. And he did have that personality that you're talking yeah. about. And it made him miserable because he didn't have those other skills that you're talking about, like the communication. Right. But what what you're saying is that coders can be as communicative as anybody. Absolutely. I mean, and a lot of those skills you can train and you can teach people to have empathy and be better managers. But um, there is no correlation between being antisocial and being good at technology. Wow. Um, and in fact, I think um, for me, a lot in a lot of what I do too is around trying to make tech social and trying to bring people together around tech. You know, when families come into our dining experience, I want them to engage in tech together. I don't. I, I hate the fact that in our culture, our phones have become a thing that comes in between us. And the people we love. You know, I feel like we've all become more antisocial as a culture. And I'd like to see us go back the other way where tech brings us together and, and brings our communication skills back. So many thoughts are going through my mind. I was speaking at a uh, convention of uh, experts in cybersecurity. Mm -hmm. And so there I am. I'm basically watching as this large group of people files in to take their seats. Uh. Usually, people come in and they head to the front row. This group starts taking all the seats in the last row, and then their computers flip up. Yep. And then... So it's like, why are you even the, there at the event if you're not even going to pay attention? Well, I guess in their own way, they are. But the interesting thing was a lot of times they needed to propose a project or get money for something yeah. that they thought was a great idea and they didn't have the communication right. skills. That's exactly right. I can't tell you how many entrepreneurs I've seen who are brilliant at coding, have great ideas, like they take it up to the 10-yard line and then they can't get out of their own way because they never have learned the social skills needed to pitch someone for money, to hire those great first people, to you know convince partners why they should work with them. Uh, I mean, those are all skills that are just as valuable as coding or creating, uh, is exciting other people to wanna work with you. And if you can't do that, you're dead in the water in business as far as I'm concerned. So I actually think those presentation, those pitch, those communication skills are on par, if not more important than, than the work that you're doing. 
Are, are, do you know any female coders who fit the old description where they just want to be in a room <laughs> behind the screen, don't talk to me, leave me alone, I just want to code? I mean, there, there are a lot. There, I mean, there are women who fit every description, but what I think has happened is that if you are one of the rare unicorns, one of the, the women in tech that has some visibility, I think a lot of these women feel an, a sense of responsibility to put themselves out there a little more on panels speaking yeah. so that other women can see them, so that they can really be a role model in the community. So I think what you have is I think you have a lot of women who would prefer to be introverted and feel a deep sense of responsibility. I mean, for me, even I'm, I consider myself kind of a a fake extrovert for work and like pretty introverted in my real life. But I feel a, a tremendous sense of responsibility to be out there every day because if I'm not out there with women seeing someone like me in tech, who are they seeing? You know, they're just seeing the same dudes. And, um, and so for me, it is worth it to overcome that, that desire of what I'd like to be doing in order to have my face out there that people see. Uh, and I think a lot of women feel that way. Now, you just flew in from Germany where you gave a presentation on cryptocurrency yes. to a room, as you were describing to me, basically <laughs> filled with men in gray suits. Yes. Um, so, you know, when you think about the fact that the tech industry is somewhere around 10 to 15 percent women, then you move, let's go to cryptocurrency, where I think less than 3 percent of cryptocurrency is owned by women. Uh, so now you have... It, uh, an entire new industry inside tech that's even more crazy slanted. Um, there are some incredible women in crypto, and uh, it's great to see a lot of them out there. I do think a lot of the roles for women in crypto, though, right now are speaking to other women in crypto. It's kind of these, you know, the women hang together. Um, so that's why when I got invited to give this lecture to a thousand men in Germany, I was like, like, hell yeah, I'm going to do that. I, I think those thousand men need to listen to a woman talk to them about cryptocurrency and, you know, see that um, women have some real expertise and some real knowledge on this area. So for me, you know, that, I'm not going to lie, that scared the crap out of me to take on that speech because you know, it, we're all new at cryptocurrency. Even people who are experts at it have only been studying it for a few years because it's so new. Um, and that was scary for me to get up on that stage in front of a thousand men who probably didn't even think when I walked on stage, like, oh, why, why are we listening to her? Um, but that made me feel that it was even more important for me to do it. Why wouldn't women be interested in cryptocurrency? I mean, th I think there's, there's a lot of reasons why anyone would or wouldn't be interested in cryptocurrency, okay, so but I, I don't think it's a gender thing. In fact, it's funny. I was, I had a, I was talking to, to one of the guys at the conference about it. I was like, so why, why do you think that there are uh, only 3% women? And he was like, well, women are smarter than men. So I, if they're not investing in Bitcoin, there's, that's probably, you know, a real call <laughs> that no one should be. Um, I do. I think there are a few possible reasons why. I think you know, definitely, you know, a, time has told that men are definitely more risk taking than women are. So they're more uh, willing to kind of jump on something that's new that they don't know how it's going to turn out. But I think the bigger part of it is that um, when there is something new and exciting that arises, you know, in your life, if you see something new and exciting, you're going to pick up the phone to a few of your friends and tell them about it. And probably most of those friends are guys. And so if the guys are, are you know, seeing this cool thing, Bitcoin, they're going to pick up the phone and, and tell their friends, oh, there's this interesting uh, opportunity here, or there's a, a job in this, or the, there's this. And again, that goes back to that kind of unconscious privilege and bias that I was talking about before is those guys didn't do anything wrong. They're not bad people to they're pick up the phone and call their they're friends. They're just connected That's to right. their own. That's exactly right. Okay. How much of the changes are we going to see in the way men and women interact? going to take place in the office? Is the office now a different place I after think, all these scandals? I think the office is a different... Well, I think the office is different even regardless of scandals. I mean, you look at how 
this millennial workforce wants to work, they don't want to go into a, a regular office anymore. They want to go to a WeWork. They want to work from home. They want to have flexible schedules. Um, I think the concept of the office as we know it is going to look radically different 15, 20 years from now. Um, you see for the first time huge tech companies that don't even have offices where everyone works from home, completely distributed workforces. Um, so I think actually a lot of that is going to start to solve some of these problems we're talking about because when you work from home, you can't harass someone next to you. And so you see in these situations where people are at WeWorks and distributed companies, the female senior executives stick around at those companies because they're not treated poorly. Um, and a lot of that, so I think um, we really need to think about the role of the office in contributing to these problems. Which is going to lead to your next book in terms of how, with all these changes, are we going to balance our lives? And I I just saw on Amazon, you can pre-order, pick three. Pick three. Why? What is the book about and how did it come to you? Pick three, it's really all about how we prioritize our lives I think there's a lot of focus on work-life balance and on finding that balance in your life. But I think it's gotten to the point where it just, it feels unattainable. It, It feels like we have to balance everything every day. And that's just not something any of us can do. Nobody can be great at everything every day. And I'm sure when you look at the things in your life that you're most proud of, your proudest accomplishments. Kids. Yeah, Yeah. like having children, career accomplishments. I'm sure those things did not happen when you were perfectly balanced. Those things tend to happen when you allow yourself to be very lopsided and kind of go for it. That's a great point. It's always been the extreme moments. That's right. Like for me, it's having my sons. Running the Chicago Marathon was like a huge, a, a proud accomplishment for me. You know, the work I did at Facebook, those those were not times that I was balanced in my life. Those were, you know, I was crazy prioritizing one area. So for me, um, pick three is about giving yourself permission to pick three areas of your life every day and be great at them rather than trying to do everything. The my mantra around it is work, sleep, family, friends, fitness, pick three. And and you do that as soon as you awake. Yeah, as soon as I wake up, I think about my three for the day. So I don't try just, to do four. Okay, you were just going to Germany right. to give a speech in front of a thousand That's men right. about cryptocurrency. What were your three three picks? That's right. At that point. Work. Right. And uh then family, because I was thinking about getting home to my family because it was my birthday. And um, and I would say fitness because I prioritized getting up early and going to the gym that morning. So those would have been my three. Certainly not sleep because I was awake <laughs> for about 30 straight hours and not friends because I didn't see them that day. Um, so, but I, I think about it. I, I, I think about it every day. I mean, I even think about going into... The weekend, you know, and, and for me... Well, what happens on a weekend? Because now you've theoretically got two free days, yeah. but you got you got kids, so... That's right. So when you have kids, you wind up picking family right. a lot. Um, but it also depends on what age your children are. As your children get older, you know, if they go off to sleepaway camp or things like that, then you're not. So I think it's about balancing in the long run as opposed to balancing in every 24-hour period. Um, In the book that's coming out, I actually have a whole workbook section at the back where you can track yourself over two months and and make sure that it's not about balancing every day or even every week. It's about, you know, how do your numbers stack up in a a two-month period? Are you you finding balance? You want to have balance at the end of two months, Exactly. So maybe, you know, during the week, you're really focused on work and the weekend is family. Maybe you have some days, you know, maybe um, summer, you have a summer focus and a winter focus or, you know, everyone's different. You know, I just heard Michelle Obama speak the other night uh, and I was at the top of the uh, World Trade Center, the new Mm, new building. Great. And... She was talking about how after a while she discovered as first lady that like the work would just overwhelm everything and being at important events for her kids, they they weren't penciled in. And and so 
at the end of the year, when she was doing her schedule, she basically put in yeah. her family for the whole year. This is our vacations. This is what our daughters need. And that gave them this sense of balance, which it sounds like the end of your book allows yeah. for the same principle. That's right. And I also think it's really quality over quantity. I think, you know, if you're going to pick three things, be great at those three things that day. You know, what ends up happening is when we try to do everything, we do nothing well. And so, you know, it's okay if work is your focus one day and you can't spend that much time with your children. Like, that's actually okay. Just make sure you're being great at your work. And then when you're turning around and spending time with your children, whether it's, you know, the next day or that you're really there with them. And, and that is, I think a lot of us, we feel huge guilt about not doing everything in our lives every day. And I just, I really want people to clear that guilt off their plate and just, you will be better off in the long run. Your family will be happier. You will be better in your career if you prioritize and give yourself permission to do so. I'm definitely pre-ordering this book. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm... I guess it comes out middle of May. Yes, May fifteenth. It comes out. Although you can pre-order it now, and uh, it's on Amazon, on, I saw it. yeah, on Amazon, and it's um, it's I, I've been researching and, and working on this for almost five years now. This uh, this concept. So um, uh, for the book, I spoke to over forty people across all careers, areas of their life, ages, um, to talk to why people prioritize in different ways. Um, what happens if you don't prioritize something enough? What happens if you prioritize too much? What happens if life happens to you and, and forces on you what you need to prioritize? You know, and was, so I, was there any one of those 40 people who told you, I got this taken care of? I know exactly how to be balanced. There or, are, you know, there are a lot of people who told me that they used to feel that way for many years, and then all of them had some kind of a wake-up call. All of them. They weren't doing it right. Yeah, that's right. Whether it was, you know, having a heart attack from not being, you know, physically fit enough or, like, collapsing with exhaustion from not sleeping or, you know, focusing entirely on work um, only to just get unexpectedly laid off. I mean, almost everyone that I spoke to starts off by saying, I thought I could do it all, and then... I was wrong, and uh, and I it took me to kind of hit a rock bottom in my life in order to realize that. Eat the birthday cake while it's on your plate. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, and make sure that you know while it might be tempting, we we live in a culture where um, we value you know work hard, be stressed, you know, and and do all these things. You know, the sleep chapter was one of the most interesting things for me to work on because. Uh, the more research I did, the more I was like, holy moly, like if you, you know, if you're not getting seven hours of sleep a night, like you're, like you're, you're heading for disaster. And uh, so that, that I think was probably one of the chapters as I wrote and researched it that made me reflect on my own habits a little more and what I needed to do. Well, I am definitely going to go to that <laughs> chapter first since I only slept for about four and a half hours I last know, night. No, no, it's, you know, and all of us, and that's the great thing about pick three, right, is you could pick three today and then you could pick a different three tomorrow. So it's, uh, you know, even if you're you're sitting here feeling like I should have picked sleep, you, you can sleep, pick it tomorrow and prioritize it, but you just, that means you only have two others left. I want to say thank you. And it's now time for some birthday cake. Woohoo! Love some birthday cake. Thank you. I really appreciate this. This is a wonderful conversation. Thanks so much. I really enjoyed it too. And I really enjoy that we got into some of the, the difficult stuff. It's easy, you know, to have shallow conversations in life. And I think uh, I really appreciate, you know, diving into some of the difficult stuff on gender. You opened my eyes. Thank and you. I'm going to speak to a lot more women. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Okay, let's wrap it up. Thank you again, ZipRecruiter. Not only have you facilitated this conversation, but today you have helped so many companies out there. Think of the thousands of them who've reached out with job descriptions and are going to receive qualified candidates within 24 hours. Maybe they did already. 
Go to ZipRecruiter.com slash Fussman, F-U-S-S-M-A-N, and get a free trial. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. And thanks again, Squarespace, for allowing everybody to be completely unique on the web with a Squarespace website. Customize your new website by going to squarespace.com. Use the offer code FUSSMAN, F-U-S-S-M-A-N, to get 10% off. Get 10% off your domain names as well. As Einstein once said, creativity is contagious. Pass it on. I say, pass it on with Squarespace. Some thank yous are in order. As always, want to thank Tim Ferriss for pushing me to start my own podcast. He pushed and pushed and pushed. Here I am doing what I was meant to do all along. Want to thank Randy for sharing her birthday cake. Also thank our audio engineer on site, Julian Weller. As well as the audio engineer handling the introductions, Philip Lanos, who's always got my back, as well as the audio expertise of Luz Fleming, who puts it all together. And lastly, you know, I used to be scared of audio technology. Now, my back is covered. I ain't scared no more. And last thank you goes to Stephanie Jones for not only putting all this in motion, but for being Stephanie Jones. See you next week. Eat the birthday cake while it's on your plate. <laughs> That's right. Happy birthday to you. Perfect. Awesome. Oh, you want me to get a picture of you? Thank you, Ben. Let's talk.